This is a podcast from Nordic Center in Shanghai. Located at Fudan University, Nordic Center is a platform for research collaboration between the Nordic countries and China within a wide range of academic areas. In each episode of the podcast, we highlight an activity or theme explored by researchers connected to Nordic Center and our 25 member universities. I'm Magnus Joram, Program Manager of Nordic Center. Today, we're exploring a topic that has been of great public and scholarly interest in recent years, namely China's role and interests in the changing Arctic. And there are several reasons for this interest, including China's、uh, permanent observer status that was granted in 2013 in the、uh, Arctic Council.、Um, and it was granted that along with India, Singapore, Japan, Italy, and South Korea at the same time. But the accession of these other observers was not covered with quite as much uh, interest uh, as China's was. Another reason is, of course, climate change, as a melting Arctic、uh, sea opens up for potential in using that as a trading route between Asia and Europe and North America,、uh, which also means the potential for increasing economic and political competition. And a third reason for interest、uh, is the potential for Chinese investments. So, this is in some ways a quite broad topic with environmental, economical, and political dimensions. And with me today, I have two scholars from our network to help us understand some of these core issues at place、uh, in a brief podcast format. And the first is Iselin Stenstal, who is a PhD fellow at the University of Oslo and also a research fellow at Fritjof Nansen Institute. Though currently, of course, she is finishing up a、uh, visit as a scholar here at Nordic Center. And Eastlin has a background in the study of Chinese and also political science. And in her current research on China's Arctic endeavors and also China's、uh, climate change policies, she is combining both of those backgrounds. So, welcome, Eastlin. Thank you. We also have with us Arthur Gushin, a scholar at Fudan Development Institute, or FDDI,、uh, and a researcher at Aquaplan Niva Norway. Previously, he has worked at the Rajaratman、uh, School of International Studies in Singapore, and he has worked on、uh, Arctic issues for a number of years, specializing in infrastructure、uh, investments. And last year, he was a visiting scholar at NIAS, Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. So, welcome, Arthur.、Mm, thank you. So, Eastlin, I'll ask you、uh, an open question to begin the conversation. What, is,、uh, what are these interests of, of China in the Arctic really all about? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not just China who suddenly decided that the Arctic was an interesting new place.、Um, if we can call it a, a wave of renewed global attention to the Arctic, I would say it started in about 2009.、The、U.S. Geological Survey then issued a report where it、uh, estimated that、um, the world's undiscovered oil and gas resources. Uh, 13% of the estimated undiscovered、uh, oil resources would be found in the Arctic, and as much as 30% of the undiscovered gas resources might be in the Arctic. So, this was really something which you know, drew attention from, from many places、um, that,、uh, okay, so here's there's more、uh, opportunities in the Arctic. And this also coincided with climate change. Um, so, the, you know, the, the ice cover is shrinking and, and the ice is melting, which is 
of course, bad for climate change and bad for the environment. But on the other hand, it perhaps also opens up uh, more possibilities of um, economic resource development. And as you mentioned, uh, it was not just uh, China who gained the permanent uh, observer status. So it's it's definitely not just China, but also Japan and Korea and uh, and many many European countries are also, you know, looking north. So Arthur, what do you say to to that um, explanation by Iselin? It's it's mainly economic uh, resource extraction and so on. Uh, what do you see as the main drivers of, of this interest? Uh, I'm absolutely sure that Eastern made a very good point about economic uh, driver for Chinese Arctic, and I really support this kind of argument, because what I see in infrastructure development, in uh, talks between Russia and China on the Arctic, that's what I see is, uh, first of all, uh, extraction of resources, and then, uh, how to say, climate change, as a side, uh, side question for it. Well, this is your, your specialty and your research is the uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, and they're within various areas, ports and shipyards and, and research extraction sites. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the major uh, in infrastructure investments that we see underway? Um, right now, the main infrastructure investment from China is uh, in Yamal LNG gas plant uh, near the port Sabeta. But in the future, we'll see more uh, activities from Chinese uh, state companies or funds like Silk Road funds in uh, securing investments and also resources from future projects near Yamal LNG, for example, Arctic LNG. That is going to be cheaper on, on around uh, 30% than Yamal LNG. So, so the main uh, uh, projects that we are seeing in development are within liquefied natural gas. Um, China, of course, does not have any territory in the Arctic. So these investment projects, I take it, must be made in collaboration with uh, regional countries like, like Russia. Could you tell us a little bit about what actors are involved? Are these state-owned enterprises and, and how do, do they work together um, given the political and economic uh, forces ch uh, shaping the region? Mm -hmm. Such kind of project requires a lot of investments and funds and competition, and I'm sorry, uh, competence. So it's uh, mostly uh, state-owned companies like Gazprom, Novatec, and Rosneft, and uh, uh, state funds from China like Silk Road Fund, and also participation of Chinese uh, oil giant company. Now, going back to you, Iselin, what are the specific priorities and areas of interest for China in the Arctic, uh, you know, in terms of climate change and uh, governance structures and so on? As uh, has been repeatedly uh, pointed out from, from Chinese officialdom is that, well, climate change is one of the, one of the key issues for China when it comes to, to the Arctic. Uh, and understanding the... The climate change dynamics as it um, affects well not just China but uh, it affects the weather in Asia the monsoon etc and also um, China and India you know they they share responsibility for for the Himalayas uh, so glaciology and understanding ice and ice melting that's also something you can study uh, study in the Arctic when it comes to to governance structures well 
Of course, um, the Arctic is governed by the Arctic countries, uh, but the, um, the main sort of fora um, for, for soft power uh, harmonization of, uh, uh, of opinions is the Arctic Council. And, uh, and um, being a, a permanent uh, observer, China is, is welcomed to the different... Uh, to the different meetings, and there's also encouraged to send uh, representatives and, uh, and, and researchers to the working groups, because it's actually in the working groups that most of the uh, work is, is happening. So what are these uh, working groups? Are they focused on specific issues, and, and which ones are they? Actually, there are a broad range of working groups inside the Arctic Council. I mean, not only biology or glaciology, mm. you know, environment, protection, but also transportation, shipping, mm. infrastructure development, uh, economic uh, business development, something like that. So almost all uh, aspects in the Arctic are right now covered by working group. But the question is, are these working groups are effective and what we need to do to make them more effective mm. in the future? Because we have new actors, we have new players that want to enter the Arctic race, for example, like Italy, like Poland, like Germany, so what they can actually offer for the Arctic in terms of all of these uh, aspects. Could you tell me a little bit more about what uh, China's role as a permanent observer in the Arctic Council has been? Um, I mean, if you, if you uh, look back in 2013, there was a lot of controversy about this, uh, me this membership as a permanent observer. And recently, uh, Arthur, you wrote in The Diplomat um, that uh, kind of perceptions of China in, in the Arctic have, have changed quite a bit since then. It's now seen as more of a, uh, an essential driver of economic development. Um, has this had anything to do with its activities in the Arctic Council, or has it been more outside and bilateral uh, relations with the involved states? Um, I suppose both, both variants. First of all, um, everyone was scared about the Chinese perception of Arctic. I mean, Chinese stand there. Nobody really understands what Beijing is going to do in the Arctic. But right now, um, all major actors, I mean, literal states, um, are quite familiar with Chinese way of doing business in the Arctic, so they uh, realize, realized uh, that Beijing is a very normal one, I mean, normal actor, who uh, doesn't only want to get resources from the Arctic, but also supports uh, other activities like uh, protection of environment, protection of social life of people, of indigenous people, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So in terms of uh, Russia-China relations with the Arctic, we see a lot of cooperation in shipping. I mean, Costco has already secured two more voyages for the next year to test the Northern Sea route as a part of uh, a great initiative, One Belt, One Road. So, and uh, Russian Northern Sea Route Administration is also doing quite well in terms of uh, making uh, the tariffs on the Northern Sea Route more transparent to foreign actors and to make this kind of... Um, a transport corridor more viable in the future. And to some estimation, we will have around 5 million of foreign transit uh, up to 2035. So it seems reasonable right now. Could you tell us a little bit more then about uh, the Northern Sea Route at present? I mean, how easy is it for ships to navigate those, those icy waters 
um, also in terms of Chinese capabilities with, with icebreakers. Uh, right now, if you want to travel the northern route, you need to use an uh, icebreaker convoy. Uh, that's for sure, because there are a lot of uh, nuances. If you do this kind of shipping, first of all is safety. The second one is like darkness in the Arctic. Then third, floating ice. Also thick ice in uh, winter months. So right now we can use uh, the Northern Sea Route for around five months per year, especially in summer, summer period, but not in the winter. And uh, if we're talking about the amount of ships on the Northern Sea Route and the volume of cargo, so we can say that the Northern Route right now is in a kind of depression because of um, oil prices, because of not enough uh, shipping contracts, because the whole shipping industry right now is in a kind of um, slowdown. But a very positive moment in the Northern Sea Route development is that Beijing, I mean the company Paul Technologies, has already signed a contract with Arhangelsk Port to build and renovate Arhangelsk in terms of um, uh, offloading more cargo to Russia if you traverse north in the route. So it's a very good sign, not in terms of China-Russia relations, but also in terms of the whole development of the northern sea route. Because if you have a port, a big new port in Arhangelsk, you can use as uh, Arhangelsk, for example, Kirkines link or Arhangelsk Tromsø link in terms of uh, goods flow to Scandinavia and then to continental Europe. You just mentioned the the idea of this uh, Silk Road. Of course, that's uh, the initiative for, for China's um, overall outreach in terms of Asia and all the way to Africa and Europe is this One Belt, One Road, which is a major initiative uh, from the Chinese government to uh, invest in infrastructure along this route and you know make it a an even stronger trading route than it is today. But you mentioned this just now in relation to the Arctic Sea Route. Um, do you see anything in terms of you know, potential investments or major funding, and what would this mean potentially for the economic prospects of Finland, Sweden, and Norway, which of course have territory here and could could be beneficiaries of, of this sort of thing? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, uh, Scandinavia can benefit a lot in terms of Chinese investments if um, Chinese will come to the Arctic with uh, uh, lots of money. Uh, because if you, for example, travel the northern route from Shanghai, so you need to go through the whole territory of Russia, and then we have a situation where right now undeveloped uh, Murmansk port cannot uh, afford to to bring uh, big, really big ships like container ships or another conquer to Murmansk because uh, the railroad there is stuck with coal. I mean coal uh, deliveries. So you need to. Uh, um, change your route to Kirkenes, for example. And right now in Kirkenes there are five uh, investment projects to be built for the future, but they need a little bit investments. So those aren't Chinese projects, but they might attract Chinese funding. Yes, they might. And amid of uh, political tension between two countries. So uh, back to you, Islin. I mean, right now we've been talking a lot about potential, potential, potential. Yep. Um, but what has happened so far in terms of Chinese uh, resource investments in the Arctic? If we, I'll leave oil and gas uh, to Arthur. But if we uh, look at uh, other mineral investments, um, 
not so much. <laughs> there are a few examples. Uh, for example, in 2011, China National Blue Star bought Alchem. Uh, and part of Alchem uh, in Norway was also the quartzite mine in Finnmark. So, so that's now Chinese. There's uh, another project in, uh, in Canada, in Nunavut, uh, where the um, China Min Metals Non-Ferrous non Metals has a project on the uh, a copper sink uh, project uh, called the Isaac Corridor. Um, they, they started in 2012 um, and did a lot of preparations, but thereafter they realized that you know there, there's there's such a need for infrastructure and they were not willing to sort of carry this um, cost by themselves. So so this project was just put on the shelf. Uh, however, this year there is sort of resur resurfaced. Uh, well, maybe not rumors, but there's been discussion if maybe the, the government can chip in uh, for it to take the, the infrastructure costs. Uh, so, so that might be something for the future, but uh, right now it's just um, it's just there. And of course, there's the um, there's the big um, maybe not elephant in the room because there's no elephant <laughs> anymore. But uh, on Greenland with the Isua iron ore mine. I remember in Norwegian newspapers they were talking about as many as 3,000 Chinese coming to Greenland. Um, however, that uh, that project was actually not uh, Chinese. Uh, it was London Mining, uh, a company based in uh, in, in London, uh, and they were they were looking to China both as a market, uh, but also as a source of funding. Uh, and uh, in their uh, in their reports and uh, feasibility studies, they they did um, use uh, estimates uh, with the Chinese uh, subcontractors, uh, and they were also in negotiations with several Chinese companies. However, um, no contract ever materialized. So, uh, and, and and it's kind of a sad story because in two thousand thirteen. 13, uh, London Mining actually obtained the exploitation license, so they were given the go-ahead from the Greenlandic government to, to start constructing the mine. Um, all they needed to do was find the proper funding. Um, but uh, a year later, uh, the only sort of income for London Mining was, as, uh, was uh, a mine they had in Sierra Leone. But uh, then we had Ebola. And Ebola close to mine in Sierra Leone, which also uh, sort of drew the carpet uh, away from from London mining. So they they went bankrupt. Um, and um, <laughs> I did not have any expectation that Ebola would be related to investments I know, in Greenland. You know, we're very connected now in this uh, <laughs> in this world. So uh, so the, um, the the rights for London mining Greenland and the the issue of mine it was sold to. Uh, General Nice. It's an investment company based in Hong Kong, but it's uh, it's run by a Chinese, and they also have an office in Tianjin. And they they invest in in mineral projects, but also in in real real estate globally. So, but with today's iron ore prices, it's well, it doesn't seem like it's going to be constructed a, a iron ore mine anytime soon. 
Uh, I can also add uh, several investment projects from Chinese. First of all is Sinok Offshore Drilling in uh, Iceland, near Iceland, it's the area Drake. And Sinok is a stand-owned enterprise, yeah. right? Uh, the China... China Ash big oil giant yeah. company. Uh, so they are drilling right now in Drake for seismic rock, just to see whether there are enough uh, oil and gas to extract. Probably they can, will also secure a license for um, for the similar project in Gamur area, also near Iceland. Uh, last year, uh, Finland received one billion of uh, euros of uh, Chinese investments into bio uh, fuel plant in uh, Laplandia. So it's very good. It's a very good sign because after it. Uh, the plant in Kemi, when the plant in Kemi will be built, uh, we will see more Chinese investments in green energy of, for Finland. So it's a very good sign. And uh, I would also like to add that uh, a number of Chinese tourists to Laplandi is growing significantly within the last three years. Uh, last year there was around 15,000 Chinese tourists in Laplandi. Uh, so, but in 2013 it was only 7,000. So you see the growth, grow, the growth rate is big, but in total number it's just very little. But um, according to Lapland of Commerce, uh, these 15,000 people brought to the local economy of Finland around 80 um, to 100 million euros. So I think it's a really good amount for such a remote region in Finland. Mm. And speaking of Chinese tourism, um, there's of course also the case of Huang Nubo, the, um, the Chinese investor who wanted to buy, you know, a piece of land in Iceland, and and that was, you know, to build a sort of eco park or a golf course. I didn't heard. Uh, but uh, the the deal was was stopped uh, in Bradford for you know public opposition to um, sell that sort of big chunk of land to to a foreigner. Um, maybe not specifically because it was Chinese. But um, um, so a few years later, uh, in two thousand fourteen, he actually uh, obtained a piece of land in Trums in Norway. So he now has uh, at least the land. For, for building the, um, the hotels uh, for, for tourism. But um, I must say, I haven't heard any news about the actual development, so it might still be in the, in the planning. Well, the, the Nordic Center's uh, council members, we were in Iceland, uh, Reykjavik, back in April, and I noticed an incredible number of Chinese tourists on the street. I mean, it was very, very clear that they've been uh, visiting uh, in great, great numbers in recent years, and that's what I heard from, from locals, too. Um, I want to ask you, Arthur, about uh, China's relations to Iceland in recent years. I mean, what have the dynamics been? Because they seem to have gotten along quite well in, in, in these past few years. Could you tell us a little bit about what's what's been happening between those two? Um, on bilateral uh, ties, everything, to my mind, is great between Iceland and China because they have uh, a lot of connections. Uh, this year, in October, they have finally finished building the observatory for Aurora. So they have a very good uh, connections in scientific sphere. So, and in the future, 
I believe that China will also uh, have interest in securing the place uh, in uh, one of the grand projects of Iceland for the future Arctic shipping. I mean uh, the grand port in Finnafjordur. There are uh, no, no, how to say, um, something on the, nothing on the ground right now between China uh, and Iceland, but I believe that uh, Beijing will pay more attention to it when in 2020 there will be first uh, groundwork. I want to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about um, investments, but of course there are political uh, dimensions to China's uh, activities and aspirations in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, Eastland, you recently mentioned in a paper that China has not released any official Arctic strategy. Mm -hmm. um, of course, that doesn't mean that there isn't strategic thinking in, in Beijing about uh, how to approach the Arctic. As a researcher, what do you look to? What, what sources or signals do you try to read in order to understand uh, Beijing's aspirations in the Arctic? Well, mm, I mean, yeah, like you said, there's no official strategic document, but uh, there's a, there are quite a few official statements and speeches uh, for example, made it, uh, in connection with the Arctic Council or, or other uh, bilateral visits. So, um, so I think you can get sort of the guest from 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 these speeches, really. Um, but of course, um, uh, money talks. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I think what we see in terms of uh, investments uh, for research is, you know, it's a sort of a clear sign that. Uh, it's not just um, not just a um, figure of speech when when China says that they're interested in understanding climate change and understanding these dynamics. Uh, they're also putting money into it. And of course, China has uh, for some years now had a, had a goal to be to become a leading nation in uh, in research. So so it's not just limited to to the Arctic or the polar. Uh, or polar studies. It's a great uh, improvement uh, in, in spending on research in general, uh, which you can also see in terms of the, just the number of uh, publications. Uh, what I can add to Island's statement, uh, from my interviews with Chinese scholars and Chinese uh, politicians, I have right now two days of releasing Chinese uh, Arctic policy. The first date will be somewhere in the end of January next year or the start of February. But from the other resources, um, I know that the paper will be released during the next CNARC forum in Dalian City. I mean, China Nordic Arctic Research Cooperation yes. Forum, this one. So you see, everything is awake right now. Mm. But what? Uh, from, but from my perspective. This kind of Arctic strategy will be um, quite similar to Arctic strategies of other countries. Uh, it will be just a framework. Mm -hmm. But the real deeds, the real business will be maybe in the working groups or on bilateral, uh, really, um, bilateral basis between China and Russia, for example, China and Iceland, China and Scandinavia, or Nordic countries in general. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we'll see the reaction of the U.S. to all that kind of activities. And it's not uncommon, I mean, that you have a sort of a 
a strategy for a place or uh, it's uh, so maybe you know the anticipation for China's Arctic strategy is a little bit um, too great. You're absolutely right about it. We shouldn't expect more something new. What about because we've been talking a lot about uh, you know the the Nordic elements here and China's potential investments. There don't seem to have been that many so far, but. But, uh, you know, you are a Russian national, mm -hmm. and you also know a lot about Russia's uh, thinking in, in the Arctic and its activities there. Uh, if we're going to talk about any potential kind of um, great power dynamic going on, uh, I suppose that looking at China and Russia would be, or China and the U.S., or Russia and the U.S. in this region would be the most interesting relations. So how, how are Russian and Chinese relations being shaped by, by the Arctic? Does it, does it play a major role in the two sides? Uh, yes, to some extent, uh, absolutely, it can shape the, the Arctic balance of power. And because first, uh, China and Russia are strategic partners, and Arctic is of strategic interest of Russia right now. So you see any kind of uh, connection there in this area will influence uh, the whole uh, balance system in the future. I mean, in terms of China-U.S. relations, U.S.-China relations. So that's, for me, it's very obvious. Uh, but on the same uh, time, we will have more um, competition between other tracks in the Arctic policy. I mean, for example, China-Iceland connections, or uh, Nordic-Russia tensions, or U.S.-Iceland uh, and U European Um, except for say a union in terms to compete with China and Russia mm. but uh, there is also a room for huge um, development of uh, border uh, territories of Russia and Scandinavia so to my mind it will be more helpful for uh, senior officials to understand what kind of opportunities we can have because there are huge uh, room for it. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a conflict. Uh, I think there are several areas of room for win-win opportunities. Um, and also, if you look back sort of historically, I mean, the Arctic has been a fairly peaceful place. Uh, so um, I don't really see any, any good reasons why it should be become a place of contention now. Um. But um, I can argue with you, because if the Northern Sea Route will be a viable transport corridor, we'll have a, um, an economic competition between Scandinavian ports and Russian ports. Right. Yeah, because right now there is a concept of making two hubs on the Northern Sea Route in order to make it, uh, to travel cheaper on the Northern Sea Route, and the first hub can be somewhere in the Bering Strait, But we are right now not sure we're on the Russian side or on the U.S. side. Mm. So it's very important in terms of economic gains. And the second one, where it will be? In Iceland, somewhere in Norway probably, or also in Russia. So you see there are a lot of uh, competition right now for the future, just to secure this type of money. Right. Well, but competition doesn't necessarily have to end in conflict, though. No, it will be just an economic, uh, economic conflict, you know. 
But doesn't it just in terms of uh, pure geography give Russia quite an advantage? Because Russia, of course, controls such a long territory that uh, in order to have a safe and secure infrastructure for, for a shipping route, you would necessarily need something in Russia. Or, or is that a yeah, misconception? Uh, what I know uh, that right now uh, money secured for 17 uh, Arctic project, projects uh, in, in Russian Arctic. So money is on the ground, despite the fact that Russian economy is right now in depression. Mm. So you see, uh, Arctic is a strategic priority for for Moscow, and uh, we'll see that um, up to 2020, all kind of major construction can be already finished in terms of safe and security measures, in terms of building uh, additional roads, maybe some parts of railroads, uh, also upgrading uh, river roads. So you can go, to, for example, to Tibet and then by river to Central Asia. Because we have this type of uh, example. Uh, Korean um, firm, uh, during August and September, travels the Northern Sea Route, uh, bringing chemical reactors first to Sabeta, and then via the uh, river routes to Central Asia. You see, it's absolutely different road in U1. And next year we'll have analysis of this kind of transportation and if it can be successful and um, beneficial in terms of profit. So mm. we will see how the world uh, transport system can be diversified using the Arctic waters. Mm. Well, in contrast to so much of the media attention that's been given to China's Arctic aspirations, which has been more focused on potential rivalries and, and power dynamics, it's very uplifting to hear you who focus on these issues, uh, talk about cooperation, <laughs> investments, uh, and uh, scientific uh, collaborations. So I'd like to end on that note, and thank you very much for taking the time to uh, speak to the listeners of the Nordic Center podcast. Thank you for thank having you. me. Yes. Mm -hmm.